Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went around about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Well, good morning, Redeemer. How are we? Good. For those of you who are new, my name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, Riley just left, but wanted to thank her again for making that video. It, it helps me introduce where we're going this morning, because there's, there's something about videos, there's something about pictures uh, that are powerful. There's a saying that I think everybody in here knows, that a picture is worth, and everybody said, a thousand words. Pictures tell stories. They capture snapshots of time. Videos do the same. If you were at the retreat, my guess is you were watching that video with anticipation with one question or maybe an eye towards one character in particular. Am I in this? Where am I? You may have seen yourself and bumped your neighbor and said, that was me. We, we, we love stories because we see ourselves in them. They, they capture moments in time that reveal or capture great joy, great sadness, great uncertainty, movement in our life personally or maybe even our life corporately. They're powerful because I believe that stories are the language of our world. Stories shape us. They shape the world that we live in. They're why you're here right now. You came this morning because you find yourself caught up in a story whether you realize it or not. I'm preaching right now because of a story. I got caught up in the true story of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we gather here every Sunday to celebrate that story and have that story shape our story, personally and corporately. Stories do that for us. A mentor once told me that if I wanted people to hear truth, just tell them, but if I wanted people to know and remember truth, just tell them a story. They're powerful, and I want to ask us to pause this morning and not only realize their power, but also ask the question, are you aware of how your life is being shaped by a story or multiple ones? You woke up this morning and you believed a story or stories. Are you aware of those? Are you aware of that one? You see, they, they do a few things, powerful things. They 
they shape us and some are shaped well and some stories are shaped poorly. They're shaping our story right now as a corporate gathering and they're shaping us personally. And all of our stories point to a center, some vision, some reality, whether it be a person, a cause, or a thing that exerts kind of like a controlling influence on you, on what you think, on what you believe, and how you act, and how you feel, and the stories that you tell. And this morning, we're going to go on a journey through a story found in Acts chapter 8, even though your bulletin, I think, says Romans chapter 8. We're not in Romans, we're in Acts. And I want to help us understand the context of the story happening in chapter 8. And then once I've done that, I want to make a number of comments that I think are important for us as key takeaways as a church. And when we arrive on the scene of Acts chapter 8, it is not a feel-good scene. It's gloomy outside right now. It's been raining all morning. The air is thick. doesn't necessarily produce the greatest joy. I think that may have been a little like what the church in Acts chapter 8 was feeling, except take that and multiply that times 100 or 1,000, and you might be getting close. It says that it was filled with great lamentations. And there's a reason why it's filled with great lamentations. Because when you get to Acts chapter 8 and you, you turn the page, so to speak, to this next chapter, as you turn this page to Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it's almost as if you, you can hear the sadness and the sorrow and the confusion and the uncertainty and the fear of the early church because verse 1 says something that's pretty alarming and it says this, and Saul approved of what? His execution. Whose execution? His name was Stephen. And Stephen was a figurehead. He was a prominent leader. He was an influencer. In fact, Stephen is the guy that you didn't want to lose. He, he not only was an influencer in the early church, Stephen's primary ministry was with the widow and the elderly. He's at Sunrise Assisted Living, leading Bible studies, and loving old people, and serving old people. And then he gets up and he preaches a sermon, and his ministry is so powerful, you get an idea of how powerful it was because his critics then go behind his back, they elicit a mob, and mobs, just like every mobs, can't be satisfied until whatever it is that they are gearing up for is actually accomplished and so this is the moment. It's a turning point. It's a pivotal moment in the life of the church. His murder will be an abrupt turn in the mission of God. And now the gospel will actually take legs and advance in areas of the world that it hasn't yet up to this point. It was a troublesome scene that none of the believers would ever have written themselves if they had the authority or wherewithal to even create this story. Nobody's writing this story where Stephen is murdered. And at every turning point in your story, in my story, in a church's story, 
like redeemers. And in the macro story of God, there is always this controlling question that is answered whether we realize that we're asking the question or not. And it's the question of who or what is causing this turning point and why. What's compelling this? What's producing this? And when I say compelling, I I don't necessarily mean circumstances, although they're very important. What I mean by compelling is what desire, what motive, what hunger. And then the question that naturally follows, how am I to make sense of this? How am I to respond? How am I to interpret everything that's coming at me and therefore, what am I supposed to believe, think, feel, and act? How do I, how do, I do that, John? <laughs> well, this is relevant for me and our church because last week at the retreat, I, I shared a turning point for me and my family of five or six if you count Gracie. This turning point is a moment that I wasn't sure when it would come because it's been more than 10 years in the making. It's been daily, weekly, monthly prayer for my wife and I, counseling with friends, careful thought, careful conversations. And after 10 years of this, uh, we believe that God is leading us to turn and move away or transition into the marketplace and continue to be an elder here, but not as a paid pastor any longer. But to go and follow the Lord into the marketplace because of a moment a little more than 10 years ago where my wife and I received a call that we can't argue with and had no idea was coming down the pipe. And that call was to be in another country one day that doesn't have access to the gospel and to live there and preach there and present the gospel and to love people there But what even became more alarming to me was when we received that, the Lord told us that we would do it through business. I'm like, Lord, I'm a pastor. And so for the last 10 years, this is what's been on our hearts. When do you want us to do this? And how do you want us to do this? And where are we going? And how far out is this? I don't have any, I didn't have any answers to those questions. I just knew that my heart burned for people that didn't know Jesus. And that's how God has seen fit to use my life since the moment I I was rescued by him on July 25th, 1996 at a camp that I didn't want to go to. And we now feel released to move in that direction and to do it through real estate and to stay here as an elder. It's a turning point for us as a family and it's a turning point for us as a church. How do we respond? How do we make sense of this? What's compelling this? I'm grateful to say that we feel compelled by the Spirit of God to do something, and by the way, I'm terrified of, and at the same time, believe that that's where God's called me to be among those who haven't heard him, in a place where they don't really talk about Jesus all that much, which is in the marketplace. And so it's a a relevant question because turning points in an individual's life and in a church's life are moments where they expose faith, they expose doubts, they expose questions, they expose uncertainty, they open up opportunities, and like in Acts 8, they end others. 
this is exactly what happened. And I believe, Redeemer, that this is exactly what's taking place in our church's story right now. Turning points are important for a few reasons, and one of those is that they expose what really matters. Sometimes it's hidden. But when you're faced with one of these pivotal moments, you have to face what really matters and what's really worth dying for, what's really worth sacrificing for, what's really worth living for. And prior to chapter eight in Acts, the gospel had been in one place. Where is that? And everybody said, Jerusalem. There's one problem with that. That's not what Jesus actually said. <laughs> so turn to chapter 1, verse 8. I want you to see this in your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what we read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in, everybody say it. Keep going. Thank you, Rabel. I can always count on you, buddy. Sometimes, I used to play sports, and it's nice when you can hear the crowd, they respond to good plays. Sometimes when preaching, you just don't hear any response to good play call. So if you guys wanna say amen, that's fine by me. I can always count on Rabel and Kim. Okay, so here we go. So Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you, you're going to do this. This is not a possibility. This is not a maybe. This is not a might. You will, you will, believer, follower of Jesus, receive power when my spirit comes upon you, and that is going to move you to a few places. Jerusalem, and then we're going to go out a little wider. Judea, keep going. Samaria, Keep going to the ends of the earth. If you're wondering if that mission has been fruitful, I just want to point out, we are here in 2019 telling this same story. It's been very fruitful. You are a case in point. So Jesus tells them, you can't stay in Jerusalem. You have to go outside of Jerusalem where it's scary, where people are going to get hurt, where it's going to cost you, where you're not gonna know what to do, but those people have not heard yet, and you're gonna go. So what does Stephen do? Stephen gets up, he preaches a lights out sermon, and this is essentially what Stephen says. Back to the story thing. You're all living one. We're all being shaped by one. He tells them that the story that they are believing is being inappropriately shaped for one reason. They have the central character and the main piece of the story wrong. He dies. He gets pelted to death because he told them you are living in accordance with the wrong story because your story is not hinging upon the ultimate center whose name is Jesus Christ. So now we have this sermon preached. We come to chapter eight. The church is still not in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so what happens? Well, expansion through inconvenient disruption happens. 
Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And now, because what was meant for good or evil and God turned for good, now the everyday believer is now scattered into the very places that Jesus told his church that he was going to send them. His command was clear. And the church had preached the gospel to Jerusalem, but it had not preached the gospel among the Samaritans and the least reached and the unreached, and they needed to hear. They were still focused on Jerusalem. So God sends them out through means by which they would never have chosen themselves, and they were scattered. They were scattered through what was intended for evil, but what God turned into good, but we can't make any mistake about this. There was sadness and there was tremendous heartache. There was great lamentation. And the good news that I have to tell us this morning, Redeemer, in this moment of our season and this turning point, is that God will cause all things, not some things, not one thing, not a few things, all things to work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even if there's a death involved. Even if there's persecution involved. Even if there's a chapter in the story that you never would have written yourself and which causes great uncertainty and sadness, even when that occurs, God governs. And so someone who was sent to the widows is taken out. And here's the takeaway, one takeaway. I think in moments of painful uncertainty, Redeemer, we can always, with 100% confidence, always and forever be certain. In any moment of uncertainty, you can always, 100% of the time, be certain. Let me say that one more time. In every moment of uncertainty, whether now or in the future, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is united to Christ, one with him, in moments of uncertainty, you can always be certain, always. And the thing that you can be certain of is that Romans 8.28 is true. And what appears to be, appears, key word, what appears to be a setback, what appears to be unhelpful, what appears to be an inconvenient disruption that's not good is a repositioning and the mysterious maneuverings of King Jesus for greater fruitfulness in your life and in the church's life as a whole. What appears to be disruptive inconvenience is always turned to reposition you for greater fruitfulness and the gospel's greater strategic advance. Romans 8, or excuse me, Acts 8 <laughs> is a great case in point. And I believe for us as a church, we, we have to take roots here as believers. We have to take roots here. Because there are going to be moments where you are perplexed, when you're uncertain, when you are persecuted, when you are opposed, when you're not able to make sense of these things. And this is not going to jive very well with your understanding of a God who's all powerful and good. And if we get away from the fact that he is causing all things to work for your good, and what you think you see is just a repositioning, if you go the other way, you're gonna be left vulnerable. 
And I don't want, as one of your pastors, for you to be left vulnerable. We have to dig roots in the fact that God is strategically moving his people and his church into greater good and into greater fruitfulness. And these things, these changes aren't happening to us, but listen, they're happening for us. It's not happening to you. It's happening for you if you're a believer. And Romans 8.28 is really true. And so this presents us with a question this morning. And the question is, are you and are we encountering the disruptive, inconvenient maneuverings of King Jesus as a church? Yes. So buckle up for the ride. There's greater fruitfulness ahead. It's gonna come in ways that don't make sense to you and that's okay. It makes sense to him. We have to be careful not to judge before the time when something appears to be a setback or a delay when in fact God's preparing us for greater advance where he's preparing what's about to happen, Philip's to rise up and Saul's to be turned into Paul's. That comes as a result of this scattering in Acts chapter eight. Is that good, yes or yes? That's really good. You're here because of the scattering. So just, if you're having difficulty working with me right now, just let that sit in just for a moment. God turns pain into praise and tragedy into triumph and disruptions into decisive Victories, and that's exactly what he does here in chapter eight. And here's what I love about chapter eight, talking about people that aren't pastors or elders. The advance of the gospel, I need you to see this. I want you to look in your Bible and see it with me. Question, does the advance into the places that Jesus told his leaders to go, by the way, does that happen through the leaders or through people that are not leaders? Which one? People who aren't leaders. Chapter eight, I wanna read it so that we all can see it. Chapter eight, here's what it says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they, meaning the Christians, everyday Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. I'm so grateful those two words are in there. Because this gives a vision for the church to see that does, does the mission advance through people preaching behind pulpits or leading conversations or opening Bibles and saying, this is where we need to go and this is what the Lord says. Does, does it happen through that? Yes. Does it also happen, if not more, through people that don't do that? And our everyday Jesus followers that are doing it in the marketplace, that are doing it at homes, at stay-at-home moms who are changing diapers, who are doing it in cars or Starbucks or grocery stores, the answer is yes. And this is now how the gospel is moving in a way that it wasn't through the leaders. I don't believe they were disobedient, but they're not doing what Jesus said you would do. They would do. And so now everyday followers, even though they didn't see it, are now scattered through the means by which they would not have written themselves, and now they get to experience the joy of preaching the gospel and God, having God making his appeal through them, 
And now the gospel is going into regions that they never even thought was possible. They're seeing people come to faith that they didn't even know could happen. And it's happening through everyday people. The reason the gospel made such a huge advance is because every believer empowered by the Spirit, key, empowered by the Spirit, was evangelizing wherever they went. We're in a series on the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter one makes this so clear. You will be my witnesses when you receive the power to be those witnesses. There is a moment here in chapter eight where the spirit is empowering and working through normal everyday Christ followers, not just the apostles, not just the church leaders, and it's the very first time the gospel advances into these key areas, and it's through everyday people being filled with the spirit, going into the streets to preach the gospel and the everyday stuff of life. This is what Jesus said in Acts chapter one, verse eight. You'll receive power. This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite passages and one that to this day still at times is hard for me to get my mind around when he tells the disciples that it is to your advantage that I leave you. Because when I leave you, it's not until I leave you that the helper will come, is what Jesus said. Let me say that again. Jesus basically said it's better that I'm not beside you and the Spirit is with you. What? If you're the disciples and you have just given your entire life to follow Jesus over three years, are you excited to hear he's leaving you, by the way? And you don't understand this, this spirit-empowered reality and he says, fellas, it's better that I leave so that the spirit can come. <laughs> the spirit inside of you is better than me beside you? That's a question that we all have to answer. Do you believe that? Does your experience as a Christ follower validate that claim to be true? I wanna hear your answer, but if you had, if you had an ability to answer this question and could choose one of two realities, Jesus comes to you and says, hey, question, would you rather have me beside you at all times, physical, breathing, ministering Jesus, me, Jesus, with you at all times, or would you rather me leave you and send the Spirit? What are you choosing? I think for many Christians that I've had the honor of pastoring, many including myself at times would say, I think I'd choose Jesus. And if that's where you are, the great news I have for you is there's so much more for you to experience in life in the spirit because Jesus told us that that's better than having him beside us. And so now you see Acts chapter eight, this very thing happening. Jesus became the God man, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived on this planet for 33 years for one reason, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might present us those that are with him and in Christ to God with great joy one day. And when he left, when he ascended into heaven, the promise was, 
when you are given life in my name, you are going to become a temple of the Holy Spirit. What once you saw in a man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the power, the miracles, the beauty, the truth, the goodness, is now going to come and actually live inside of you. The same spirit that rode Jesus from the dead now lives in you. That same spirit pours out the love of God the Father for you so that now your response can be, Dad, I am greatly loved and overjoyed in because of being in Christ. Now, the person and the power and the presence of God lives in every single man and woman that is one with Christ. Jesus was so close and present, but only since he has returned to heaven has he taken up through the spirit and residency inside of us. So there's three things that I wanna point out for us to learn from what's taking place in Acts chapter eight. And the first is this. Despite all the beauty and the joy and the gladness that comes as a result of living and breathing in this amazingly but broken world, there comes tremendous heartache and sadness, confusion, suffering, and disappointment. And when this suffering and when this confusion does not map very well with our understanding of a good and sovereign God, we may find ourselves in a difficult spot. We find ourselves in a turning point in Acts chapter eight. We find ourselves in a turning point here in the life of our church. And even though in Acts chapter eight, or even though it may in your personal life now look chaotic and disintegrated, the great news is it never looks that way to Jesus. Jesus never sees things spinning out of control or I didn't see that or suddenly now has to triage some kind of disruptive things that are happening, his mission or your life like he didn't know what to do in the first place. Jesus has no problem governing all of the world, including your life and mine, our church's life, church's life in Japan and Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia and Venezuela. He is not asking for any help whatsoever. And he doesn't need any help because he, lives, he gives you and me and everybody on this planet that has ever or is living or will ever live life and breath and everything. And he's not tired. And so if it seems that things have gone outside of his control, they haven't. You just can't see it yet. And that's okay. Why would you expect to? He's omniscient. And in a time, this is what happens with my kids. Like Tim Keller calls this assumed omniscience. I remember Miller loves candy. Like if, he, if that's all he would, could eat, that's all he would eat. Miller is my eight-year-old. So he gets so angry at times when he sees a dessert, and I'm like, bro, you can't have that until you eat your dinner. He's like, I want it right now. No, you can't, have, you have to eat your dinner and then you can have dessert. There's this thing, and then he'll come to me and he's like, you don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why you always have to be against candy. I don't understand why I can't eat candy instead of real food. 
He thinks that eating candy is healthier for him than eating the healthy food. Here's the problem, and here's the reality. We do this with God all the time. We just have a different version of candy. God, my life would be so much better. Why can't I have her or him or that job or this job? Or why do I have to live here? Why can't I live there? Or why does this have to happen? Or why can't I do this? As if you actually can see beyond and above that to know what's really good for your life. And so it then becomes a question, whose definition of good are you really listening to and really want to believe is right? Yours or his? And, and when it comes to this moment, you, like I said earlier, we, we have to put roots here because if, if you lean on your own understanding, you will be in trouble. Proverbs says it so well. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. What's success? Oh, Joshua tells us what that is. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then your way will be prosperous. Then you will have great success. And it leads me to my next point. We have to be extremely careful, Redeemer, to not trust what we see over what God says. Let me say that one more time. We as a church and you individually have to be very careful not to trust in what you see over and against what you hear God say. This happens at the stoning of Stephen. Do you not think there were some people in the church that were like, really God? Like, Stephen was a shining bright light. He was, he was joyful. He was ministering to old people. Why don't you take some of the moaners, some of the complainers, some of the people that, well, if we were honest, like, I'm tired of hearing them moaning. Leave Stephen and take some of them. To leave us the leaders, at least, because we don't know what to do right now in the early church. And yet, God takes Stephen. <laughs> I love the next chapter. We get to the one that we're already reading about. Saul is ravaging the church. He's going in and outside of houses. And God comes to a man named Ananias and says, hey man, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to pray for him. <laughs> Ananias was like, I don't think you've seen, God, that he is a professional Christian killer. God, I don't know if you've seen that Saul is deeply connected. God, I don't know if you've seen that I kind of would like to survive and live a lot, of, a lot longer. God, I don't know that you've seen that, well, he has a reputation for beheading people. You see, because there's often a fight with you and the Lord where you come to him and you say something kind of like that. Lord, I don't know, but have you seen this? Lord, have you heard this? Lord, did you know this? And that this that you're referring to is your ability or capacity to make sense of the things that you're seeing, but they don't jive with what he said. 
And so God says, come on, I welcome your, I don't know if you've seen this, I don't know if you've heard this, I don't know if you know this. And then he lovingly tells us, I need you to hear this as opposed to, and more powerfully than you think you can see things or make sense of things. You can't see what's gonna happen in chapter nine, church, but you need to know that the guy who's killing everybody is actually going to turn and then begin preaching the gospel to everyone. You need to know that you're in Jerusalem now, but what took place here to kind of shake you up is gonna end up here to make you more fruitful. I'm gonna take you low here to bring you high here. I'm taking you down in the valley here so that I can raise you up on the mountain here. I may need to break you, but in the end it will be to bless you. That's what's happening in chapter eight and chapter nine. And so Redeemer, I wanna lovingly appeal to you, be careful if you're leaning on what you can see over and against what God has said. It's why Joshua 1.8 is so true. Don't let this out of your life. Don't use this where you teach this or God how to interpret the world or how to make sense of what's going on in your life. Let this, stand under this. Let this help shape you, not you shape it. Allow God to shape the way you see things, what you believe, how you act, because as Joshua says, then you will not only see the things that are gonna take place later in the book of Acts, but you will. You will enjoy fruitful life. And then lastly, we are all writing a story, Redeemer, with our lives. We're writing a story as a church. And every story has a center that it's shaped around. Everyone, even the little ones that you have listened to or are listening to even now, there's a center and it has a controlling influence on your life. The center becomes the author of our story or your story. I just need to ask you, do you know what it is and are you okay with it? Do you know how your life is being shaped in regards to your finances? Is Jesus in the center of that story? Or is there another center, another word, another story that's shaping that one? Is Jesus at the center of how you view parenting or how you look at your marriage or how you view your home or how you view your time or how you look at your time in the workplace or how you view your sleep or how you view what you consume or is Jesus at the center of those smaller stories and the bigger one that's over your life? The reason why this gathering and your time in community groups are so vitally important is for this very reason. When we come in here, we've got competing stories that are trying to grab our attention throughout the week. Are you with me? Yes or yes? When you go to your community group, you are going to enter into that community group with competing stories that are telling you some other kind of news. It's not good news, it's fake news, it's counterfeit news, it's bad news. And it's news that's tempting you to create a di or look to a different center. And when we come together, the reason why this is so important is sometimes we need to look each other in the face and say, 
you're coming around and you're giving attention to the wrong center. Like Jesus has suddenly come over here and become a second or a third or a fourth. Or your thinking, your interpretation is not in line with this story's interpretation of your life and the world. Can we please look at this? This is where our thinking and our stories and our life and our belief and our actions are shaped, which is why, one of the reasons why it is so important not to neglect the gathering of this, because there's a shaping and there's a nudging and there's correcting and there's encouraging and there's motivating and there's helping and there's nurturing, all so that our lives can be in step with the true story. The story of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to live and to die and to rise from the dead so that we here in 2019 at Redeemer Church of Arlington could know with great certainty that because he's made us his, there's nothing that can successfully move us off kilter as if some other story or some other power was gonna abruptly end his mission in your life and in our life as a church. The good news is that God sustains all things by the word of his power. That there is nothing that can thwart or stop his mission. That there is nothing that can squash his church or the fruitfulness thereof. And in God's loving kindness, he's filled you and me, all of us, with the spirit so that whatever our Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth is, we can go there with confidence knowing that whatever that's requiring of us, that's gonna be given to us. And when we trust in him and lean not on our own understanding, he will direct our paths. So whether it's your personal path or whether it's our corporate path redeemer, I wanna invite us, even in this moment, this morning, to if you are tempted to look at another story or if you're tempted to be dismayed as if God suddenly has kinda gotten out of control, let this bring us back to the truth that he hasn't. He governs all things without any close seconds, including your life and our life as a church. And so as we come to communion this morning, the good news is that this, this meal that we partake of, it points, it points to a meal in the future that we'll have with Jesus on that day when all disruptive things, all inconvenient things, all of the sad things, whether it be the death of a Stephen or the death of something in your life that you looked to and had great influence and power, if that died, there's going to be a day where that bad day is turned into a great day and that great day is turned into a perfect day. And on that perfect day, when we enjoy another meal together, that meal is gonna be centered around a hero, a Lord, the one who's writing our story collectively and your story personally. And it's a story that ends with a happy ever after. And that story ends with us worshiping this Christ, this Jesus, of which we didn't deserve and we can't lose. And this meal is meant to be a reminder of everything that he has done for you, all that he is for you, all that he will do for you, and all he will do through you to continue his mission to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea.